and welcome to One Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Harvey Young of Boston University. I'm joined today by Dr. Jennifer Pierce. Jen is a performance ethnographer uh, working as a UX strategist and human-centered designer and is recording today from beautiful Fort Mill, North Carolina, when the lands were originally settled by the Catawba. Uh, Jen, how are things in North Carolina? Um, I'm actually in South Carolina, right at the North Carolina border, but but things <laughs> things are um, things are very good. Uh, it's a little rainy and cold here, no snow. Excellent, excellent. Uh, and we are also joined by our co-host, Dr. Kareem Kupchandani. Uh, Kareem is a Mellon Bridge assistant professor at Tufts University and the author of Ish Style, Accenting Gay Indian Nightlife, and is recording today from Medford, Massachusetts, which is land originally settled by the Pawtucket, uh, which is a subgroup of the Massachusetts people. Uh, Kareem, how are you doing? I am good. Um, it's early for me. I'm not a morning person, but I'm really happy to be here on this gloomy Monday morning. <laughs> it is. It is. As I'm on the other part of, of the you know sort of Greater Boston area, it is a gray day uh, in Greater Boston, uh, but it is sunshiny, bright on the podcast this morning. And today on the podcast, we will talk about the following. The first segment will be LaDonna Forsgren's article on critical spectatorship and the Whiz, which was published in the recent issue of Theater Survey. Uh, also, as part of our ongoing sampling of theater made possible through new channels in the pandemic, we attended the world premiere production of Ike Holter's audio play, I Hate It Here, produced by Studio Theater in Washington, D.C. We'll also talk about one of the new frontiers in digitally supported or enhanced performance, software reproducing the vocal performances of dead singers, our holograms, AI-powered voices, and other search simulations, a new category of post-human art. And then, of course, uh, on Tap is five years old, uh, so we will have Panel Cap, uh, On Tap producer, regular co-host, uh, to join us at the end to mark this anniversary. Uh, and of course, we'll have our drafts. So to begin, our first segment centers on theater historian and critic LaDonna Forsgren's September 2019 article, The Wiz Redux, or Why Queer Black Feminist Spectatorship and Politically Gauged uh, popular entertainment continued to matter, which was published in the academic journal Theater Survey. Forrest Grin uh, uh, opens her article with a memory with which I can relate, uh, certainly. Uh, the family assembled for a holiday, sort of Thanksgiving for her, for me it was, I think it was Christmas, uh, watching the film version of the 1975 all-black Broadway musical, uh, The Wiz. Uh, having seen The Wiz before, uh, The Wizard of Oz, uh, Forrest Grin writes, uh, I was incredulous that Dorothy could be anything other than a black girl. And that memory for LaDonna Forsgren launches a savvy, uh, resistant readership strategy, which explores how black feminist spectators might engage with The Wiz. So Jen, what should our listeners know about The Wiz Redux? Well, uh, I really appreciate the nostalgia as well. Uh, this people of a certain age, shall we say, maybe Gen X, uh, could really can really can really connect with this. I think. Um, and what I really always appreciate about Ladonna's work is the way she combines theory, history, and ethnography in a way that makes it seem easy. She pulls it off uh, seamlessly, uh, and. Um, I just love how she talks about how we foreclose upon potential audiences without even realizing we're doing it sometimes. And uh, our own tunnel vision uh, 
has a real human cost, right? Which is, you know, um, young spectators are ever in the mind by launching with this young black girl memoir. We are ever mindful of the impression these cultural moments have on young people, which I really, really appreciated. Um, I also love just uh, the memory. I I grew up in New York City. So in Queens, uh, in the television, uh, Channel 5 and Channel 11 was loaded with commercials for what was on Broadway. Uh, And there was a particular moment that The Wiz came from. It wasn't just The Wiz. There was, um, you know, Ain't Misbehaving, Dream Girls. There was uh, Your Arms Too Short to Box with God. Um, There were all these things that you could see on the television. And um, it just really filled me with nostalgia, which I really appreciated because it immediately hooked me. Uh, The way she involved also The Wiz Live was also deeply appreciated by me because I know that, as she and I have discussed, actually, that this happened right around the Trayvon Martin time. And she does such an excellent job of calling out the executive decisions uh, about uh, activist potential that was overlooked, uh, but while still appreciating how subversive the production still uh, managed to be. So uh, those are sort of my hot takes on, on, on this piece, which I appreciated so much. I think her style is a, a style I deeply appreciate because ethnography is something that's becoming much more important just culturally all around. Uh, as you know, I'm a UX designer and I design for accessibility and for EDI. Uh, and so we are using ethnography and ethnographic practices to examine cultural situations to make sure that we're calling people into the experiences we design. Uh, so watching how deftly she practices ethnography makes her a really good resource for me in my in my practice. Kareem, what's your take on this article? Um, so I I have to come out as someone who really does not like musical theater and musicals and 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 I think about this a lot because I, I watch uh, I read about Bollywood film and, and they're really important arguments to me about how the form of um, Bollywood film and use of song and dance is very different from uh, from musical theater so I always feel like I have to qualify that and say I'm not you know it, it just isn't my world and so in, in all of that I also haven't seen The Wiz so it was actually really refreshing to read this article that gave such a clear mapping of this uh, this story and this world through three different um, iterations the broad the Broadway show the the film and then the live version so I, I just I love that uh, journey that LaDonna took us through to, to experience the the multiplicity of of the whiz um, and I also felt guilty the whole time that I hadn't seen it while, while watching while while reading but but I, I'm just going to embrace that I'm a, a bad queer who doesn't like musical theater and that's okay but <laughs> but what I think is really brilliant in uh, and it's something my students often ask me for I teach introduction to queer studies and my students want a clear grasp of what does it mean to queer something they're always uh, they I mean they want the world to be more accessible to them I think as you know going off of what Jen was saying and and I think that this this article really uh, expands the worlds that are that are possible through the whiz and through musical theater, and I think she she really takes us through three different iterations of what queering can look like. So when thinking about the um, the Broadway show, she's thinking about her own agency. 
to say to to interpret Eveline as what she calls a black dangerous dyke, or simply to to think about Dorothy's refusal of um, uh, to think beyond the home and to to refuse heterosexual marriage as a queer practice, right? So it's the the um, audience member or, or reader's agency there. But in the when thinking about the the film. <laughs> I think she she starts thinking about queer aesthetics. She starts thinking about camp and um, uh, Elena Horn's camp, or um, the use of disco. So so aesthetics that queer people really enjoy and and co-produce, and how those show up in the film. And so that that's its own queering. And then there's um, in the live version with uh, Queen Lativa in a in a drag drag king look. It's this um, apprehend queer apprehending of the Wiz to to figure queerness visibly in the performance. And so there are just these, these three iterations of queering that I find really useful, really teachable. Um, and, and it reminds us that this text can circulate beyond a theater classroom, right? And, and would be so great for my gender studies classroom and maybe would uh, require me to watch the movie as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but what you have, as you were saying, is LaDonna offering this, this multi-leveled analysis of the whiz and so you have a fairly conventional theater history narrative of like here's here's the process by which the book was adapted into well the book was adapted into the film that then became the broadway musical that then became the the film version of the all black broadway musical so you have that part of it right and then i think that kareem you nailed it in terms of looking at the agentive aspect that a author can bring to read and to create a space for black queer spectators in this space uh, in this article that that is and then of course also to look at the role of camp and i think that those last two parts of it is part of ladonna's effort to be recuperative mm -hmm. to say that musical theater is not the domain of of white gay men specifically and that it opens itself up to a number of queer viewing practices, uh, especially black queer women. Mm -hmm. I couldn't help but think, Kareem, as you were talking, that that space did open up for you there, that you feel like you can easily walk into it now and, 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 and glean some value from it, right? You know, um, I thought that was really a, a moment for me when I was hearing you talk. Yeah, I, a a, go ahead. A question I have for you both is, how does the structure of the whiz align with or, or perhaps against a resistant reading strategy? Because it's so layered. Like, does it, does it make it that much more challenging to uh, create a space for uh, a variety of spectators? Or is it already there for you because it's so multi-layered? So this is one thing that I was anticipating when I read the when I was reading the article and I didn't see it and and I think it would only expand the argument but one of Stacy Wolf's offering around musical theater is that um, it gives it she says it, it gives us more ways to song and dance give us more ways to take something from the musical or from the experience that narrative or character don't right so so the ways that you know, you leave the theater still snapping along to a song or to a track or or recreating those movements, make it sit in your body for a long for longer periods. And 
Um, and so I think, you know, but that's something that comes with, I think, fan studies or uh, a different kind of ethnography, ethnographic practice that I think would, would really expand um, the scope of this, this study, you know, to, to think about how else other than narrative and, and lyrics and, and um, character and dress, th those are already a lot of uh, methods, but um, might this uh, sit in the body and expand worlds for audience members? I'm reminded of a text uh, that came out in the ni late 90s, I believe. Uh, it was uh, called Queering the Pitch, where we have, even within music theory, we have these non-semiotic uh, values that actually can themselves be opened up to queer readership and queer audience or queer uh, listening, listenership, right? Uh, so uh, that, was a, that was one thing that came to mind when you were talking, Harvey. But also, I just love the way that LaDonna called out the way that Black queer feminism has this sort of easy embrace of pop culture that uh, is, is sometimes lacking in other feminist uh, uh, discourses that I, you know, I just really love I find it delicious and and so and so like one of the things that comes up for me whenever I read about the Wiz is just that sort of uh, reciprocal loop between what was going on on television and what was going on on New York Broadway at that time so Mabel King was on what's happening and Nell Carter give me a break these were all the things that I was watching all the time <laughs> you know and I grew up in this very multi-ethnic multicultural environment in New York where I was not uh, in any way uh, se separated from that kind of multiplicity so that this was part of my experience at that time and um, I just you know I really think again uh, it's it's LaDonna's gift that she's able to make this all so conversational yet so complex these interweaving theories queer theory um, you know and all of the other things that she was weaving into this uh, with with Wolf and Dolan's uh, feminist readings uh, at play amongst this distinctly queer black reading of the whiz that that embraces all the pop culture uh, that's there and this idea of the whiz like her not even understanding or even b fully believing that this was about a white girl originally is just it, it's amazing it, it's so rich i actually that i think that really is a uh a, a major contribution of this essay is that a black queer reading is different from a queer reading uh, a black feminist queer reading produces different kinds of um, understandings and and worlds um, and I think that that's that's uh, that again makes it really teachable to show students okay here's what Alexander Doty did here's what um, Jill Dolan and Stacey Wolf have offered here's how we build a different kind of argument when we uh, look from a different standpoint and and take into consideration different uh, perspectives. Such a great point. I mean, and Queen Latifah as a drag king is different than Leah Deloria as a drag king. It's it's very it's very it's very different. So, um, I appreciate what you just said. And Queen Latifah as a drag king is so hot. <laughs> so good. I agree. I agree. And, and I think that's also a big part of the Wiz and Broadway, but really the film version of it is that it opens itself to the many associations that you have with the actors who are playing these roles on both the film version but also the Broadway Wiz Live. You know, so when you bring Queen Latifah to the table, uh, when you bring uh, Mary J. Blige mm -hmm. to the table, when it's Lena Horne, when it's Michael Jackson, right, there's a way in which 
understandings of race and intersectionality uh, along the lines of gender and class and more. Like their, their backstories begin to feed and fuel how we understand their characters. And that's part of the magic, I think, of The Wiz, is that audiences come to both of those texts, the Broadway Live, Kenny Leon-directed version, and then also the, the film version of The Wiz, and they bring their own associations and memories and sense of pleasure attached with engaging and watching and viewing the performances of, of these actors. Well, and, and that reminded me of another thing was she describes herself uh, wiping the jerry curl off the sofa and doing the moonwalk. And there's something in there that is so it was so multilayered in terms of the fact that the Wiz is something that played every year as this holiday offering, right, that we could watch. Um, and that this was pre Michael Jackson pre moonwalk, but he's still there moonwalking while she's still enjoying this sort of 1970s Michael Jackson who was memorialized in, in The Wiz as well. So that was also a moment of delight for me in, in, in reading this essay. All right, so on that note, let's transition to our next topic, uh, which is uh, centering on Ike Holter's I Hate It Here at Studio Theater uh, in Washington, D.C. It's an audio play, uh, and the play runs through March 9th, so I encourage everyone to check it out. It's free, but donations are appreciated and certainly encouraged. Uh, and you can check out the, uh, the play at Studio Theater, uh, theater that's theater, R-E, studiotheater.org. Ike Holter is a playwriting force, a recent winner of the Writers Guild Award for his work on Fosse Verd in the TV show, and most recently the author of a cycle of plays, all available through Northwest University Press, uh, which offers perspectives on the life in Chicago. I Hate It Here has generated a ton of buzz and uh, stellar reviews, uh, so just to give you a few highlights before passing the mic to Kareem to uh, launch us into this conversation. DC theater scene describes it as, uh, it is a cliche to say that a work of art captures the zeitgeist of the age, but I hate it here does, and that's that. New City Stage says it's razor sharp and faster than a speeding bullet. And Broadway World notes, uh, Hamilton, meets, Hamilton mixtape meets Orson Welles' as The War, War of the Worlds, right? So this sense of a multicultural, really dynamic uh, sound oral explosion uh, for the ears. Kareem, walk us through, tell us about I Hate It Here. So it feels very appropriate as we approach the sort of one-year mark to when things around us shut down um, that we're talking about. Uh, I hate it here because it opens with a song uh, called This Is Who We Are Now, and the the ensemble is singing over and over again, this has been the worst year, this has been the worst year. And it's funny, I start with the, the music because I said I hate musicals, but um, <laughs> but it really it really got me right that this <laughs> this has been the worst year. Um, and the the play starts at starts us there. But um, I, I, before I tell you a little bit about the play, I just want to tell you about Ike, because I, I think the world of him. Um, my first encounter with Ike was in Chicago's queer performance communities about 10 years ago, and he was performing at Salonathon and other storytelling venues, and he would host theater productions in his backyard. And I say this because it feels like his theater making is always in community, right? And so we start with an ensemble song, um, but but we we hear the same actors also performing in different roles, and and so there's sort of this community we're invited to in in the in this play. Um, his first big show that I saw was Hit the Wall, um, that 
that it's an original rock musical and stages the 1969 riot at the Stonewall Bar. He also wrote the 2014 play Exit Strategy for Jackalope um, about Chicago public schools facing closure. And then last October, he dropped an another audio play called Put Your House in Order about a terrifying virus creeping into Chicago suburbs. So his plays are very, very, very topical. <laughs> um, and they, they're situated in the worlds that matter to him. And, and so you always feel sort of the sense of community or the anxiety around the loss of community. But I think his work is really far from didactic because he focuses on these very complex characters that are that are brought to life in, in the vignettes and in the play. And um, he has this very deliberately scripted speech and, and all his works always feature these amazing, amazing epithet-filled rants. So if you're looking for new insults to <laughs> launch at someone, please listen to this show and any of Ike's work. Um, but but the show is set up as a as an album, and and um, the vignettes and scenes and monologues are listed as tracks on the program. And that was really fun to be able to go back and listen to specific ones because they give you the the timestamp. Um, and it takes up, again, topical issues, not only the misery of living through the last 12 months, but many other reasons to hate it here that <laughs> well precede this, uh, um, this pandemic, including, you know, uh, in one we find out, someone finds out that his mentor is a sexual predator, or, or there's a, a, there are uh, several ways in which um, he gets us to think about white complacency in the face of anti-black violence. Um, but again, they're, they're, they feel like heavy issues, but they stage through these very uh, exciting characters who speak in dynamic language, and, and the voice he gives them is, is fast and it's entertaining. So they're, they're about 12 tracks, uh, and I thought I would ask you which one stood out to you before I tell you about my favorites. Um, Jen, can we start with you? I also was uh, really immediately hooked by the opening ensemble number. Um, a lot of my research, earlier research uh, in cognitive science was about the logorrhea of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Uh, and I applied it to various contexts, including Shakespeare, um, uh, and he references Shakespeare throughout. Um, but there was this kind of... Uh, you know, it reminded me of Hamilton as well, just this sort of, you know, rapid fire speech that can only come from the intense internal pressure of oppression threatening to damage, right? So we need to get it out so that it can be expelled. And uh, so I was really, I really, I really dug that. Yeah, my favorite track was number 10, which is the I'm an activist parts one through four. And that track begins with someone in an office building, annoyed by the protest, the activism on the street, and essentially wants to self-identify as an activist, but also has frustration with what's going on outside, but then ultimately goes out, and then it shifts, the voices shift from that person who then goes out into a crowd with the people who are actually there um, joining this movement and you realize just the different positionalities and perspectives that are at play so there's not one uniform perspective around sort of an activist thought process and I thought that was just brilliant how what Ike Coulter does is he shifts your positionality as a listener and it's an audio play but it feels very real you feel like you're traveling from this building down to the street you're in a crowd and it creates a communal sense of presence that I miss from live theater yeah, that, that, 
that really struck me in, in that piece, I'm an activist, because you actually feel like you're walking through or watching from the perspective of, of the speakers. And I, I re that was going to be my favorite. But um, <laughs> I'll tell you about track 12 also because it gave me uh, such anxiety <laughs> in, in, a, in a really important it, it, it caused me, I think, to reflect on where I am now in my life and my activism. And it's, um, it's about an interracial gay couple, a black and Latinx couple, and their friend who's a black woman who seems to have more radical politics than them. And they're, they're, the couple is celebrating a small victory that they've, they've gotten a stop sign put outside their house to keep the area more safe. Um, and their friend Tanya is trying to hold them to greater ideals than just getting a stop sign put up. And, um, and it's this battle between small victories and um, in, in everyday politics and living versus actually taking a stand and showing up to, in front of politicians' houses. But and maybe I'm giving away a little bit too much, but there's a, a song attached to it called Victory. Um, and it is it feels like it comes out of nowhere, but it is just so it's it's what we need as an audience in at where it comes in the show, and um, it's just a powerful um, ballad uh, that takes care of the audience, takes care of the characters um, in a in a really beautiful way at a moment that we need it at, at a moment that I think we're quite exhausted. If I might just. Uh sort of steer the conversation into the direction of the form for a minute. Um, every time I'm looking at these uh, pandemic offerings, I'm thinking along two tracks. How is this, you know, as an offering separate from the context? And then how is this as a sort of consolation offering <laughs> uh, during our context when we miss live theater so much? But audio in my other research, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to find ways to talk about my work that's not like other than what I do as a scholar, because they are intermarried. But in my professional work in industry, I am always thinking about where the future is going. I'm a futurist, and audio is the future. We have this new social platform, Clubhouse. I don't know if, if you have um, joined yet. If you need an invitation, I have some I can send you. Uh, it's really, it's really um, fun, and it's drop-in audio podcasting. It's like the Facebook of podcasting. And you can form little groups, and you can just walk into podcasts anytime. You can form a little podcast spontaneously, very casual conversations happening all over the place. I will warn you, there's some bugs with the platform where suddenly I'll just be standing uh, anywhere and it'll start talking at me. But anyway, um, <laughs> the idea is that, that that it's the future and, they, and everybody's talking about how this is the new medium. And I, I was remembering the dark horse of talk radio in the 80s and 90s in the political <laughs> atmosphere, right? Uh, and so that I think that Ike is really, really... Uh, onto something new that will persist um, and because it's done in a way that goes beyond uh, Wells, right? Uh, it, it goes to something new. It combines that Hamilton moment with Wells and, um, and, and, and it's something that will persist. It's not just a consolation prize for me. And, and why is that? What prompts this desire or return to purely audio entertainment? I think that the visual uh, or optical aspects of social media, like these memes and uh, reading posts, has exhausted us. And that we find listening 
restful. This is just my theory. Uh, I'm sure other people have more uh, elaborate developed ones, but I really, I know for myself, I find audio very restful. I use um, Audible and podcasts um, for to as soothing mediums to myself when I just need to shut down the visual and the and the sort of reading uh, parts of my brain. Uh, and I think that the world is just uh, reaching out to it. It's also an efficient way to communicate for people this drop in podcasting. But I also really appreciate the track feature that he had, as you all mentioned as well. I think this is something that, you know, we like as secondary products from musicals, but that it can be a primary mode of interaction where you can enter the piece from any any place. It doesn't have to start at the beginning. You can enter it from any place, uh, which McLuhan talked about as being a future mode of communication that we, we should embrace. And he was talking about that a long time ago. Uh, and, and it seems to be here. And Harvey, I, your question makes me think of something our, our friend and colleague Katie Zine posted on Facebook recently, um, saying that students, um, queer and trans students and students of color take a certain safety in learning online and being able to turn off their TVs. And, it, and I think it's similar, right? <clears throat> Having a different kind of theater that doesn't require you to go out in public and stage your body for white audience members to consume you while you watch <laughs> theater um, provides a certain sense of safety, I think. So, so being able to, to, to listen in your home. You know, I got to have my, my moment of anxiety <laughs> around interracial dating and, and being held accountable to, to politics in my own home, right? I didn't have to think about who was watching me and how I was, fe how I was feeling. Got, I got to, to think through those things myself. And I think that, that pri while I was building furniture in my <laughs> living room, you know? Um, so I think that there's also that, <clears throat> I, I think it also works with, a, I guess, a highly neoliberalized <laughs> work condition in which we have to do multiple things at once and we have to review theater while we do other things and it, it, it also is compatible with um, changing lifestyles. So if LaDonna Forsgren offered us a model for how to be an agentive spectator, what advice would you give to the listeners here uh, in terms of how to approach or hear, I hate it here? So what was your own strategy in terms of engaging with the play? So I, I listened to it twice and I didn't I didn't hear this the first time, but it it really um, it, it, it jumps out to me as really important. And, and towards the end, uh, one of the characters says, you're not as alone as you think we all fucking hated here. Um, and I think that that's actually uh, it's there in the first song, of course, but it's actually, I think, something to, to hold on to for the entire uh, play, um, that all the discomfort is uh, that you feel as you listen to it is not something that you're experiencing alone. Um, and so, and, and, and I think that that's important because, again, we are listening to it alone or, you know, in the company of one or two people, perhaps, but um, it feels like an important message to, to hold you through the show. Jen, what was your approach? I was focused on the form. Um, I was focused on whether the form was truly transgressive or not. Um, and because that's where my interest is right now. So I was focused on, does something new open up here that I think will persist beyond the pandemic? Because I've been sort of obsessed with this 
did, when I watch uh, the offerings that are uh, the multiple offerings that have been available to me, which has been delightful, um, and and a whole other mode of interacting that I I never indulged in before with these live streams and things like that, um, and we talked about um, Circle Jerk a few episodes ago right and that you know that was just I always think though did this have to be this way or was this uh and this seemed to be something that had to be this way and there was something like even if we weren't in the pandemic the the form even though the the content is the pandemic the form of it uh was an offering that was substantial that I could think about uh and that was my mode of engaging with it um the form was transgressive and it opens up something new Harvey what was yours well, I listened to it start to finish initially, and I will admit this is before I realized that there were tracks. <laughs> <laughs> so I listened to it straight through, and, and I will admit that I became more interested in the work the later it proceeded, the more it proceeded, if that makes any sense. So the first 15 minutes, I thought, wow, this might be a while. And then around a half an hour in, it really sort of took off for me. And then by 45 minutes, that, 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 that track I mentioned, track 10, you know, I, I was just loving every bit of, of I Hate It Here. So what I then did was I went back, having discovered the tracks and having listened to the whole thing, you know, try to remember which, which tracks align with the, the parts that really resonated with me. And then I did what I would do with any sort of album that I've, like in my old listening habits of, a person who used to actually buy albums and then you listen to the whole thing straight through and then you start playing your favorite mm-hmm. uh, songs and moments. And that's what I did. Uh, so it gave me a chance to revisit again and again certain tracks. Uh, and what I found particularly interesting in, in thinking about my own thought process was being aware of how I was associating racial legibility with voice. Mm. Uh, so listening to the audio performances and imagining who the actors were before actually looking to see who they were in terms of in the program uh, and and what their racial identities are. Uh, And I just found it a fascinating strategy. So I would recommend using our tips and, and begin with the ones that really hook you in 10 and 12. And then I would say, go back, listen to the whole thing. And then for the listener to find their own path forward after that. All right, so now we're going to transition uh, to a different type of audio recording. Uh, We all, for our third segment here, uh, which centers on AI technology and original artistic productions using dead artist voices, gestures, and mannerisms, uh, mannerisms rather. Uh, To launch the investigation, we read Minwoo Parks and Daewon Kim's Reuters article, South Korean AI Technology Brings Back Folk Singer's Voice, about how AI was used to create a new song performed by Kim Kwang Suk, uh, who died 25 years earlier uh, as part of a game show, Competition of the Century, AI versus Human. Uh, The developers trained uh, the AI to exactly imitate a human's vocal organs. And of course, this is not a new issue. It's not necessarily tied in to the geography of South Korea. Uh, If you watch the Super Bowl uh, in the US, uh, and of course, as that was broadcast around, you'll have noticed a hologram Vince Lombardi uh, who offered a rousing speech. Uh, and more recently in the news just this week that we're recording, uh, the TV show The Simpsons uh, admittedly repurposed an old audio recording uh, of the voice of Marsha Wallace, who died eight years ago, to create a new episode. Uh, so uh, with that, how should we understand these developments related to AI and technology? Jen? 
Um, well, this is uh, my bailiwick, right? So um, there's so many things about the technology of this that I find fascinating, but I won't bore people with it. Uh, but however, um, I'm so interested in the ethical question that was raised at the end of this, where um, a resident of Seoul was saying, uh, I'm worried that AIs are going to be running the world uh, because AIs are acting like humans. But if if this is the mistake that people make, I think, in considering the dangers of AI is not so much that they're running the world, but what human agency will do with these technologies. Um, you know, there's John Searle's Chinese room argument, which I don't know if people are familiar with that argument, but the idea that, you know, if you're receiving, if there's somebody translating and you're receiving it through the computer, the translator is still the person receiving it through the computer. There's no understanding on the part of the computer. There's a programmer that's uh, using algorithms in this case to create that sense of understanding and create an experience that resembles understanding. So the, the true danger here is not that, you know, we're going to be run by AIs, but what human agency will use AIs to do, which is to uh, trick us into thinking that who we're listening to and who we're looking at is legitimate. Uh, and it's still that human understanding behind it that's the danger and not the AI itself, right? So that was really something that jumped out at me here. But uh, as I mentioned in e an email and conversation uh, with this group, um, I had been working with uh, Dr. David Cope, who's emeritus at uh, USC Santa Barbara, and he created something a while ago called EMI, which is E-M-I, and it's on Spotify, and he has been able to sample music for quite some time and create, uh, take all the Vivaldi's that ever was, and then create a new Vivaldi that Vivaldi ex experts would uh, mistake for an, an undiscovered Vivaldi. Um, and I, w I was talking to him in the context of doing a multimedia performance I was creating called Creature, and I wanted to take uh, Trent Reznor and combine it with 18th century music and create a sound. And uh, the complexity of that legal category, what part of Reznor's sound does Reznor own, uh, makes it a very complicated, it was a fun conversation to talk about. But uh, So this really hit home with me. It's uh, very interesting how they frame it as AI versus human uh, in, in this sort of thing. But the other human side of it is the emotional experience that the singer's family had in, in listening to to the voice of their departed uh, loved one. Uh, that, that really moved me. And I think that this is something that um, we're going to see more of. You can create a letter from your dad to yourself, right? <laughs> that sounds like your dad um, after your dad is gone. Uh, so it just it, it was very moving for me to consider the possibilities there. Kareem, how did you respond to this well, this piece? You know, I um, the first thing that came to mind was, will I? Is there the opportunity to hear Whitney Houston sing again? Um, and you know, I, and I mean, I think there, there's there's sort of a charm to to thinking that these these people who've given us so much life can can live on through their uh, through their they've given us life through their voice can that their voice can live on and and do more things. But but I think the the ethical political question there is is to what end will their voices be used? Um, I'm thinking of you know, were Nina Simone's voice to to be recreated? Um, her politics were so um, defined, and I can see you know some sort of capitalist uh, um, overuse of her vo her very um, distinctive voice. And and so I, I worry about who's gonna who's gonna have um, copyright over their voice if it if it's remade um, through through AI. 
Um, so, but this this isn't my wheelhouse. So, uh, I, I'm not sure I, I know so much about the AI end of things. It is it is a good question in terms of the ethics around the use of a person's voice or a likeness or or uh, uh, mannerisms, and I think that you can look at the. On the one hand, you could make the argument that, you know, for the case of The Simpsons, Marshall Wallace, uh, or um, in the case of this game show for Kim Kwang Suk, uh, that the estate, the families authorized and said it was okay to do this. But you can also think about, you know, how contentious the Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, family, those siblings are, around their father's legacy to say that uh, there's no guarantee that there will be a singular voice that will responsibly. Uh, like look out for the memory and the legacy of 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 their ancestor, their parent, their whoever whoever's estate they're managing. You know, but but that boats the question: if the estate says it's okay, is it okay? Well, it, it, it's it's not so different than like say Samuel Beckett, right? And the Beckett estate adjudicating how, how his plays and words can be used and who can be cast in it. I think it's it's a legal category that we uh, have some precedent for. We just have to apply it to different to different things. There is, I think this came up with Carrie Fisher in Star Wars too, and I don't remember how because they they created her likeness in order to continue the story after her death and. Uh, I'm not. I'm not sure how they actually uh, adjudicated that. I wish I knew that. I should have looked that up. But um, I am. Um, I, I think that that we can overinterpret the complexity of this because it, it is just like words can be combined and recombined in ways that alienate the original author's intent. Uh, this is an algorithm that takes phonemes and recombines them, right? Um, and and it's 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 exactly the same in a lot of ways. It's just a, a higher level of technology that allows us to do something more powerfully than before. But I think this also came to light with television and film. You know, once we moved from the the theater, you know, there was all kinds of legal. Um, ethical violations that occurred um, uh, from magazine stories, women magazine stories being co-opted and created in, into into plays and, and then having to um, do that. So there's going to be a lot of legal battles. And that's what uh, Dr. Cope and I were saying. <laughs> we, were, we don't want to be the first one to like try the Trent Reznor and, um, <laughs> and uh, 18th century music combo uh, and find out. Or it, we also talked about Cobain as being a, a possible candidate. We didn't want to mess with Courtney Love, right? So... <laughs> Um, you know, because there has to be that first person to do it for the case to be brought for us to figure out. Because, of course, what Dr. Cope and I were talking about was slightly different because we're making a new thing. We're recombining. We're mixing and matching. We're doing mashups uh, that take little little small units of sound and blend them together according to an algorithm that's predetermined. Um, so um, it's but it's fascinating. And the technology is very exciting and, and not to divorce it from any of the very real concerns that Kareem is bringing up. But I do have this tendency to partition those things off and just delight in human flourishing and human ingenuity. Well, I also, you know, conversations around estate and who gets to control someone's legacy um, bother me because they are situated in heteropatriarchal um, continuity and and the and sort of keeping keeping money, um, not just artistic legacy but money where it is, and I you know to go back to Whitney Houston the way that her biological family has controlled the narrative around her sexuality and her queerness, just reminds me that I don't necessarily want them to be the ones to to um, to hold on to her voice or or her story. 
Um, so, so I think that that, you know, to, to bring LaDonna back into the conversation, when we think through a black feminist queer lens, what, what else might that tell us uh, about what we're looking for, how knowledge circulates, um, and whose perspective we're, we're thinking from? Materiality, property rights, all of exactly. it, it always, it always comes back, right? It seems to me that there is a way in which an individual artist at some point becomes a brand, and then that is the tension, where once it's not a person's agency as an artist, but it's the brand, the voice of Sinatra, the uh, the style of Michael Jackson, that sort of thing, that then, that can you... How should I put it? Is, it? is it freely available to take a widely accessible brand and repurpose it for new artistic creation? Uh, because it seems to exceed the individual. Well, like Sinatra's phrasing, for example, people borrow that all the time, uh, that mode of phrasing, uh, which he borrowed was not his originally <laughs> from people of color, right? So, I mean, like, we, we're always sampling and remixing and imitating when we're mimetic when we create the pieces. So this always bothered me, too, with dramaturgy and directing. I have a friend that tried to patent a directorial choice in... in uh, in a Shakespeare play that he made uh, because he saw other people imitating it and was completely, completely horrified. And I thought, well, I'm not quite sure that you invented that convention. Um, and, and, then, and then there was the dramaturgy issue around rent, right? Can we, can we actually say that dramaturgy is a brand or a product? You know, it, these are called, and that's that myth of the single genius creator. All of these performances are, are influenced, uh, but a person's vocal sound is a print, right? That is something that we can separate. Um, maybe not phrasing, but Sinatra's particular sound is individual. It's a snowflake. It's a fingerprint, right? Um, and that's something that that is going to be very interesting to watch in the courts going forward. Um, you know, as heteronormative and patriarchal as that is, that's what we have. That's how it's going to be discussed. Um, and so I'm I'm watching that keenly. Uh, how, how how do we talk about things like like a person's sound? It also makes me think of TikTok and. <clears throat> the way that people are reproducing, lip-syncing to other people's voices and sounds. <laughs> and, but, but when it comes to property, TikTok can delete the original, and, but other people lip-syncing to that sound are st still have access to it and are, are, you know, still hold it in a way that the original doesn't exist anymore. Um, or people say, yeah. you know, that meme is mine. I made that, right? <laughs> like, yeah. how, how do we even trace <laughs> that? It's become so, like, there's so many little little iterations and, and pieces of data. And sometimes things just mysteriously seem to arise at the same time, right? In parallel, a kind of zeitgeist, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that, that arises. And, and who owned it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey, so on that note, I, I want to transition to our next segment. And, you know, really, and I think this transition uh, makes sense in terms of thinking about work that really emanates out. Uh, also, if we think about uh, the distinctiveness of sound that Kareem talked about, the idea of the single genius creator, uh, and also to go back to LaDonna Forsgren, I think that there's no place like home, so if I say on tap three times, I might be able to welcome in panel camp. So on tap, on tap, on tap. Panel, are you hey. there? Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Uh, I was just out for a walk in the neighborhood and I 
bumped into some on-tap co-hosts. How's it going, everybody? We're back Good home. to see you, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what are you guys doing? Re- recording the podcast without me? What is this? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so on tap, uh, this magical, wonderful podcast is now five years old. Uh, panel, as the Zeus-like figure out of whose brain on tap uh, emerged, what are you thinking? I, How do you well, feel? first of all, first of all, I cannot. I refuse to be compared to the the genius artists whose voices are being reconstructed through AI, <laughs> and I absolutely refuse any comparisons to Zeus. Though I'm very tempted, you know, you know me well, you know I'm tempted to accept the mantle. But um, <laughs> it, you know, it's it's been great. It's it's an it's an idea that I originally had. Harvey and Sarah were so gracious and have been so generous. I was so happy that that the two of you agreed to be part of this, and now. Uh, as we are, as we've transitioned into this new model where we have um, all of these new co-hosts bringing new voices and perspectives into it, I feel like it's it's going even better than ever. Um, but yeah, five years. There's a lot of water under the bridge at this point, and I I feel very gratified by how the podcast has gone. I feel like the thing that we set out to do originally, which was to make this uh, a, a sort of hub of communication in the field where people could learn about the new research that's coming out, check in with you know developments that have to do with um, the profession, learn about new art, and, and hear um, a range of different voices. I feel like we've done that, so I'm proud. Um, uh, and I thought on the occasion of, of talking about the five years that I would share some fun facts about the podcast that listeners might not know. Um, so we're, we, we've been releasing audio for five years now. We have recorded 50 episodes. This one we're doing right now is the 51st. Um, we are coming up on 50,000 plays overall, um, all inclusive. And um, we, we, the, the podcast is played about a thousand times a month pretty consistently now. And that doesn't just mean the most recent episode, but it's when new people discover it and go back through. Um, the sort of biggest markets, although I, I hesitate to, to use the terminology of markets because we're not selling anything. There's no money that gets exchanged. But the the sort of areas, the cities where most people listen are New York, Chicago, St. Louis, Toronto. And that's all inclusive historically. The fifth one, the fifth biggest uh, area where we get played is Bowling Green, Ohio. And that is something I've been wanting to bring up on the podcast because (laughs) I it's 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 curious. It's now in the last year, I think, or year and a half, it's become one of the most um, active places where we're listened to. And I suspect that someone there at the university might be assigning it in classes. And in any event, this is my message in a bottle to you in Bowling Green. If, if someone in Bowling Green would like to email me or, or, or hit us up on Twitter and just let us know why we have so many listeners there, I would love to know it. We're, we welcome it. We're, we're so glad you're, you're listening in the numbers that you are. Um, but are are you assigning it to students, or is it like an, an AI that's just playing it over and over again <laughs> and scraping the audio Sampling. and creating, yeah, and creating a, a a generative adversarial network to imitate all of our voices? I would love to know that too. Um, some more fun facts: about eighty percent of our listeners are in the United States, but our largest um, markets outside the U.S. are the U.K., Canada, Germany, and the Netherlands. Um, not a real big, no real big surprises there. 
Um, a few more things. Uh, Harvey and Sarah and I did two test recordings. Before we recorded what became episode one, we did two different tests to try to work out the kinks technically, um, sort of get our rapport on mic going and figure <laughs> out where any of the obstacles would be. And I have those audio, uh, those audio files. Um, we have no plans to release them. I think we might consider doing what the Wu-Tang Clan did with their most recent record, which is to print a single vinyl recording of one and then auction it off. Um, to a mega fan or something. Um, but we have two audio, we have two test recordings and I went back through and listened to those. Um, and the topics we chose for those tests are uh, for, for audio test recording number one, Ai Weiwei's Never Sorry. Um, I think I introduced the topic by saying, Ai Weiwei, Never Sorry. What do we think of this guy? Which that was me, you know, learning how to be, how to try to be a, a podcast host. Um, um, I got I have one more fun fact to share, and that is that there's an early episode. I'm not even sure which one it is, where we had a snafu with Harvey's audio, and in the audio we got, for some reason, every time Harvey spoke, there was a kind of scratchy overtone to the file or to the to the utterance, and so Harvey after the recording was done, re-recorded every utterance that he made on the whole recording. He created his own separate audio file, listened to the, to the recording, and then basically spoke again everything that he had said up to that point, sent me the audio, and then I edited it back in. Um, and I don't, it's an early episode. I'm not even sure which one it uh, is, but um, fans of the podcast can check that out and, and try to figure out which one it is if they are looking for ways to fill their time. All right. Uh, so thank you, panel. Uh, let's, let's keep you on, on the line here uh, for the, our last segment, which is drafts. Uh, drafts are, uh, as our long time listeners know, their topics, their ideas, they're essentially thought bubbles that we've been uh, sort of thinking over, mulling over, uh, but they're not, they're true drafts. They're, they're not things that we've revised, that we've uh, processed uh, at great length. It's really what's in the t- forefront of our minds. So panel, what's your draft? Yes, um, I've got two quick drafts. Um, one is uh, Sydney Skybetter's recent article in Wired on um, uh, choreography and robotics, um, how choreography can help robots come alive. Um, I was really, it was really great to see this article, and, and, and listeners can find it online. But this is the time of year when we, uh, for the past couple of years, have gone and recorded the podcast live at Circe. Um, you know almost one year ago was when we recorded our session there. And that was the weekend when the pandemic sort of broke out and um, universities started to shut down and it became a major sort of presence in everyone's life in the United States all of a sudden. So in a way, it was nice to get this article to read um, uh, about Sydney's research to get a little substitute bit of uh, kick-assery, as he might put it. Um, and so listeners should check that out. I also, in a, in a similar vein or in a related vein, I also wanted to use this time to just help get the word out again about a search that uh, my department is doing. Um, the Performing Arts Department at WashU is looking for a scholar artist in experimental digital performance. This is part of a digital transformation hiring initiative that WashU approved this year, and we're sort of on a late start. Um, 
applications are due March 7th. Uh, we're looking for someone who has a critical practice and a creative practice in some sort of art making, performance art making, theater, dance, live art um, that involves computation and new digital tools. Um, as I said, I believe the applications are due March 7th. And if you want to find the job posting, search uh, WUSTL, Wustl, Digital Transformation, and you can find the page there. We're really hoping for a, a diverse pool of applicants. And so um, please forward this along or, or help spread the word so we get as much um, uh, 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 consciousness of this uh, position, this opportunity as possible. That's all I got. Great. Kareem, what's your draft? Um, I'm going to copy panel and do a quick plug and then a draft. Um, so my first draft on uh, on tap was about <clears throat> aunties and thinking about aunties. And now th three or four years later, I am uh, editing a special issue of text and performance qu quarterly called Critical Auntie Studies. Um, and you can find more information at www.criticalauntiestudies.com. Um, I hope you'll think widely with me about who aunties are um, in our lives and in media and performance. Um, <clears throat> but my, my draft draft for today is, I've been thinking, I am teaching a, a queer nightlife course and in the middle of the course we take a dance break and students DJ for 10 minutes. Um, and so I, we dance on screen <laughs> with each other. But it's gotten me thinking about house parties in general, not just um, because we're partying at home now because that's what we've got and we're trying to stay safe, but that the archive of what queer house parties are is actually very small. Um, and because, you know, private space and, and wanting not wanting to be documented and such, but I just think that there needs to be more thought about what, um, what queer joy and parties look like in homes and domestic spaces. Jen, what's your draft? My draft, uh, to carry on with the theme, is also a plug. Uh, my draft, uh, and it is drafty because I'm still working out how to explain this efficiently, but uh, in my work, I do something called design sprinting, where I take uh, interdisciplinary uh, expertise in computer science and uh, data engineering, data science, uh, and I've been recently innovating with philosophers and artists as well to solve a problem in a short given period of time. So um, my, my company is allowing me to do pro bono institutional collaborations with universities to uh, solve a problem. That problem could be result in a product, a policy, a service, or a process. And I'll say that the product, for one example, is an AI platform to uh, deal with ethnographic archives, perhaps, or things related to the field in that way, or performances, ways of innovating scholarship with digital uh, media. Um, <clears throat> has great potential to get large federal grants. And um, I'm working with the ADRI right now at Penn State, not officially, but we're in the, uh, we're about to, um, you know, make a, do our first design sprint. I've already worked with people in the ADRI faculty on small design sprints. It's an amazing, amazing opportunity. So if anybody listening or anybody on this panel would like to participate with me on a one day design sprint to solve a problem in the field, uh, where the end result would be a, a prototype of a policy, a product, a process, or a service, please hit me up at genuinepierce at icloud.com. 
And uh, I would love to hear from you. Uh, it's picking up very quickly. I'm doing a small project for uh, for York University with Sarah, where we're um, creating a user uh, user interface for accessing funds for students who need, have needs-based assistance. So they have millions of dollars that go unused every year that could be um, fortifying York University. And they've found that one of the major roadblocks is a poorly designed interface. So I'm working with uh, multiple experts to create the most usable, EDI-friendly, accessible interface for um, for allowing students to easily access those funds. So that's an example of a problem we could solve. Excellent. Uh, my draft is, uh, I'll follow suit, sort of two things. Uh, the first uh, relates to Zoom meetings. Uh, and I'm, I'm trying to figure out why my Zoom meetings are just exploding in my calendar. And it's not that Zoom is making things any sort of more efficient in terms of meetings. I think that we, we've reached the point of pandemic where exhaustion has set in and people just think, let's just have another meeting. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive that, that meetings are increasing as people's exhaustion is setting in. But I've noticed that. I've noticed that, uh, that the increase in frequency of meetings um, is, is somewhat alarming to me. Uh, but the other th more positive uh, and more universally applicable announcement that I have uh, relates to uh, for those within the U.S. and eligible for U.S. federal funding. As I'm hearing that there's a bubble of funding that's heading toward the NEA and the NEH, uh, and that to be eligible for it, you have to be in the pipeline. You, you have to have already submitted applications. So there will not necessarily be a special request for new applications, but I would encourage you to, um, if you have projects in seeking funding, to get those in within the next few months um, before whatever deadlines are looming, uh, because there's more money coming to fund arts and humanities projects. Uh, but you have to be in the already submitted application portal to be eligible for it. Uh, so that's what I have. Uh, thank you, everyone, uh, for listening to this uh, episode. Thank you, Jen. Thank you, Kareem. Thank you, panel. Uh, it's a great conversation. I encourage everyone to check out LaDonna Forsgren's uh, article in Theater Survey. I encourage everyone to, video, to, to visit Studio Theater and um, you know, listen to Ike Holter's I Hate It Here. Uh, and, of course, to uh, look and continue to think about AI and the role that AI has in uh, new media and new performance creation. So with that... I wish everyone a great day. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Harvey. Thank you, Harvey. Thank you. On Tap is produced with the support of the Performing Arts Department of Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. Our associate producer is Carly Kessler. Our intro music is by Septahelix, and our outro music is by Gabriel Kahane. You can learn more about the podcast at our website, ontappod.com, contact us at our email, hosts at ontappod.com, and follow us on Twitter, at ONTAP Podcast. 